Here in our church, we have a, uh, a mission, vision, and values. You hear our mission referred to often to honor God by multiplying devoted followers of Jesus through worship, community, training, and witness. We also have a set of eight core values that you may hear on a less regular basis, but are nonetheless important to us to guide how we do ministry and what we emphasize as we carry out the mission that God has given us. We like to think of them as kind of the guardrails and the motivations in our ministry. And among those core values is the seventh one that goes like this. We celebrate unity in diversity. Now, I have to tell you, most of those core values have been met with strong affirmation and clear understanding, but a couple of them have evoked some questions. And I remember the time a number of years ago when someone came up to me and said, Pastor Mike, why are we so positive about diversity? I'm not so sure that that should be a core value. Evidently, diversity is a trigger word for some people. I had to think about how to respond. First, I noted that it's not diversity that we celebrate. Diversity is a fact of life. It's a reality in our world. It's the unity in Jesus that we have that allows us to celebrate diversity rather than to find it a great frustration, which is true in many places. Second thing I said is that diversity in unity in Christ uh, allows us or expands the possibilities for God to show off his glory. See, diversity complicates life, but it also colors life. It's the spice of life, some people say, and diversity is our destiny. Unity in Christ in the diversity of God's design. If you've looked at the end of the story, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb of God. God celebrates diversity amidst the unity in Jesus Christ. So if you're not wild about diversity right now, you better get wild about it because that's where we're headed if we know Jesus Christ. Of course, that verse speaks of ethnic or linguistic diversity, but you might ask, what about the other kinds of diversity? Diversity in the body of Christ, gender difference, age differences, differences of personality, differences of gifting. Do we celebrate those? And the answer is yes. We celebrate them because they help complete each other and they expand, accentuate the glory of God. They allow us to show the world of the unity we have in Jesus Christ. Now, next week, we're going to look a little further at the topic of age diversity in the local church, which, let's be honest, makes ministry more complicated. But again, it allows the glory of God to, show, to shine brighter. This week, we're looking at the design and the benefit of gender diversity, especially in the life of the local church. How do we value the genders and live out our differences as people made in God's image? And we're going to turn to that. Now, as we begin, let us, at least let me, acknowledge the minefield that gender relations and gender topics are in our society. Many years ago, uh, the movie Home Alone came out. How many of you have seen Home Alone or one of its sequels? Okay, good. It's a favorite in our household. In fact, our second uh, child at a certain age looked just like the main character in Home Alone. Uh, there are multiple scenes in that movie in which the house is, is booby-trapped from expected trespassers. And these invaders 
appear in due time, and in very humorous fashion, they sustain all kinds of life-threatening injuries from their choice to walk through that space. It's a minefield, and they blow up, so to speak, multiple times. In my most honest moments, that's what I feel like today. Danger lurks out here, and my goal is just to emerge relatively unscathed. In all seriousness, in topics like this, we must talk about them in the local church. And we must seek what God wants for us. There are a lot of people, both beyond and within the church, who feel this desire to be liberated from traditional patterns and oppressive uh, paths in times past, who desire to kind of reimagine, to recreate a, a new reality, a new set of identities when it comes to gender. We want to throw the old ways on the dust heap of history. We want to be free. John Piper wrote, the irony is that human autonomy feels like we've gained significance when in fact we have lost sanity. Freedom from God feels exhilarating, but it's the exhilaration of skydiving without a parachute. And he's right. Today we're going to seek a summary or overview of gender in the Bible. You can call it a theology of men and women according to divine design, but it's actually less than that. Our focus is going to be much more on the local church. How do brothers and sisters in God's family, in the body of Christ, regard each other? How do we relate to each other? How do we celebrate each other in our complementary design and differences? Here's the big idea you see at the bottom of your worship program, the complementarity and teamwork of men and women in the church are a blessing to all and an adornment of the gospel. I'll say it again. The complementarity, there's your big word for the day, and teamwork of men and women in the church are a blessing to all and an adornment of the gospel. We're going to be in a number of different places in the scriptures. I'd encourage you to pull out your Bible, to look along, and to follow along on the screens. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, just put up your hand. You'll see a host or hostess in the aisle who would be glad to give that to you on loan if you don't have a Bible for keeps if you, uh, I'm sorry, on loan if you do, for keeps if you don't own a Bible. We're going to look at two main areas, and you see these on the back of your program. Uh, men and women as God's creation. That's the first section. We'll go rather rapidly. And secondly, men and women in the church, where we'll slow down and go a little bit deeper. You also see in your worship program a, uh, a half-page insert here, Gender Diversity in the Church. I'm going to do something that's not nice. I'm going to ask you actually to set that aside and then pick it up at the end. And this can be your reference for the journey we travel. But I think it may be more helpful if you just follow along uh, in listening and what we uh, look at in the scriptures and see on the screen. All right. I need to say from the beginning, we're not going to be able to be exhaustive or address every question. You're going to want some more biblical data in certain places here. And there, there are going to be a number of times where many of you are going to say, Okay, I get it, I see that, but what about? Or, yeah, but. And you're probably uh, posing a fair, even a good question. I just want you to know that just because time doesn't permit us to explore that, especially applications, your question is a good one. I just am begging for patience in light of our limited time today. This is a survey, this is an overview, this is not exhaustive. But I hope, that today we can be helpful and hopeful. Helpful in understanding, hopeful 
in the God we follow in our world. We believe here at Grace that the Bible is God's word, that this is authoritative over all other sources of wisdom and knowledge. Our culture is not, our experiences are not, even our preferences, especially our preferences, are not. You and I may not always understand what God says or why he says it. We may not even like it at times. But in topics like this, each of us is called to submit to God, to submit even more than we do to the laws of science, say gravity, or to uh, the owner's manual in a car. See, God's the divine designer. He's made it all with great intentions, with grand purposes, and in light of that, we place ourselves under God's word. One more thing. My deep desire is to be clear on truth and gracious in tone. And you can be the judge of that in the end. I realize that a topic like this touches upon all kinds of sensitivities and experiences, some hopes and pains that people have. But I want us to hear what a good, good God has in mind. I want us to see God's design as not only livable, but embraceable in a culture like ours. I want us to conclude that the plan of God is not just true, but beautiful. Just before we begin, let me give you a couple of resources that I'll make reference to, particularly in the first section, Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body, great, great book on uh, gender and sexuality uh, in the world in which we live. Kevin DeYoung, especially in the second section, Men and Women in the Church. We have this in our bookstore as well as a couple of the others. Um, a, a good summary of some things we'll talk about today. And then several books by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin, a British uh, lady, PhD from Cambridge, brilliant and a great writer. We've referred to the secular creed before. Uh, she's written some other books called uh, Confronting Christianity and one on uh, women in the Bible. Really fantastic. I'd encourage you to check one or more of those out. First section, men and women as God's creation. Let's begin where the scriptures begin, which is the first chapters of Genesis. And it's, it's impossible to overestimate the importance of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for understanding male and female. There are lots of people who claim a Christian position or want to be biblical about this, but they fly right over the foundation into other places. And we do that at our great peril especially when we talk about humanity, men, and women. Here's the foundation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Let's dive in. First of these 12 points will go quickly. God made every human being in his image, either male or female, with great value. Now, a couple things from the start. First, humanity was made in God's image. And that wasn't said about any other aspect of creation, only human beings. To be made in the image of God means to uniquely relate to God, to uniquely reflect attributes of God, in some uh, human way, and to uniquely rule over the rest of creation for its flourishing. 
Human beings, you and I, are the crown jewel of God's creation. But when we follow the story, when we look at the up-close version, Genesis chapter 2, we see that male and female, man and woman, were not created simultaneously, but sequentially. First came Adam, later came Eve. God makes the woman from the man's side. And she is no afterthought. She is no, oops, I better add something. No, she is essential to God's commission, to God's plan in Genesis 1. Men and women are created equal, but meaningfully different from one another. And you'll hear that on many occasions today. Second thing to notice is that human beings are gendered from the start, male and female. The primary, the explicit, the distinguishing factor of all factors in humanity from the beginning is gender. Male and female, it says. Binary. There's no third option here, no third category. We might try in our day and age to alter or hide or reverse our gender, but every person is inherently made by God, male or female. We often hear, unfortunately, uh, terms like what someone was assigned at birth. That's bad terminology. What we ought to concentrate on is what we were assigned at conception by God and who we were made to be. Second, both genders are needed, especially through marriage, to carry out God's original commission to the human race. Be fruitful and multiply or increase in number. A little biology lesson here that requires sexual involvement of humanity, a man and a woman. That's how more human beings made in the image of God are created. And that becomes God's greenhouse, his laboratory for fruitfulness, marriage. Now, marriage is not expected for every human being. And for those who aren't married, they are no less made in the image of God or of value to God than those who are married. But the vast majority of people in life will be sexually intimate, will be married, and this is God's design for humanity. Which means that anything apart from one woman, one man, covenant marriage isn't just deficient, it's actually contrary to God's plan for sexual intimacy. It's within marriage that that kind of sexual expression is invited and expected by God. Why? For pleasure, for protection, and for procreation. Sex is God's wedding gift. Third, our gender design is not purely physiological or incidental to our identity, but it's central to it. It's very tempting in our day, in our culture, to think that gender and sexuality, and I view those as synonymous terms, refer only to the visible features of our bodies. You know, a certain anatomy, a certain function, a certain set of limitations as male or female. But otherwise, we're just the same. But that's not true. The Bible speaks of embodied people. We're not just bodies or souls, but God knits us together as a whole. And what we do with our bodies matters. It's not separate from who we are as people. Now, there are a lot of ways that a man can express his maleness or a woman can express her femaleness. And let's be honest, in a lot of cultures, including our own, we have so narrowed those as to cause great harm to a lot of people. But the Bible does make clear that our gender is not up for revision. 
Males need females to express themselves as women. Women need men to express themselves as males. DeYoung wrote, men and women are interdependent but not interchangeable. The one feature that shapes life as much or more than any other, our biological sex, was God's choice. He didn't ask for your or my permission. He said, this is who you are. Four, both men and women are sinners as a result of the fall. And that sin, sin nature, affects our gender particularities. If you look at Genesis 3 there, it's the account of the fall into sin and the curses. And if you look at the narrative as it goes there, with eyes for gender, you'll see some very important things. For instance, the, the sequence. The serpent speaks, the woman speaks and acts, and the man acts. Then God re-enters, and in reverse order, God addresses the man, then the woman, then the serpent. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. And if it isn't, why did this happen? Is it a coincidence that God addressed the man originally, giving him the creation mandate, and that the man in the moment of truth was the one who was silent? Is that a coincidence? Does that matter? I think it does matter. We're going to see that when we look at a couple of other questions later on. Look, look at the text there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Skip down to verse 16, the curses that come from this fall into sin. To the woman, he, God, said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Curse is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return." What we see here is that Eve sinned not just as a person, but as a woman and a wife. Adam sinned not just as a person, but as a man and as a husband. Equally human, equally self-centered, equally rebellious. But when they sinned, they were given curses that spoke right at their gender. Gender is not incidental to who God made us. Fifth, the history of fallen humanity includes a history of distorted gender and all manner of dishonoring relationships between the genders. Here's the short way of saying that. Sin messed up everything royally, especially gender. In fact, God predicted it. Genesis 3, verse 16 God said there will be warfare between the sexes, between the genders, and especially in the marriage relationship. And you don't have to go throughout all of human history to see how poisoned that well has become. You can stay in the first book of the Bible and see it all over the place. It was a tsunami from the start. We find in Genesis, 
incest, rape, trafficking, adultery, abuse, neglect, and more. We, we hear of the patriarchs and how they trusted God, and that was true, but they, they followed some shameful conduct from the get-go, some terrible behavior as men. And many of the women weren't so great themselves, scheming in sex and procreation, in nutrition. Think of the twins and their mom, arranged marriages. The fall introduced a cesspool of poison into gender relationships, and human history is a broken record of the tragedy. And yet, the problem is sin. The problem is not that God ordered male and female as differentiated beings. There are a lot of people in today's day and age who think the solution to all this is to just get rid of gender as a category. Get rid of it. Not in public life, not in sports, not in law, not in identity. For many people who advocate for this or who themselves would like to be different, their motto is if you can't beat them, join them or avoid them. If they're the problem, become like them or avoid them. The problem is that's a it's an exercise in futility. It's an exercise in pain. Alexander Strauch writes correctly, discrimination against women is a grievous sin and an honor, dishonor to God in whose image women are created. Yet in our zeal and to right the wrongs committed against women, we must not forget that God designed male-female distinctions in order for the sexes to beautifully complement one another and to exercise different functions in society. Sixth and finally in this section, God's salvation is offered equally to men and women since we are equally valuable and equally needy in God's eyes. If you spend any time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see this portrait of Jesus interacting in, in beautiful, remarkable ways with women. It's true when Jesus chose his 12 first disciples, later apostles, he chose all men, and there's a reason for that. That has effects for how we look at certain patterns and ordering in Christ's church. But how Jesus treated women was revolutionary, especially if you know some cultural background of the time. Jesus had no problem blowing up cultural, religious realities when he saw how they undermined the equal dignity and need of women. McLaughlin, again, Cambridge PhD, writes this, Jesus' valuing of women is unmistakable. In a culture in which women were devalued and often exploited, it underscores their equal status before God and his desire for personal relationship with them. I love how she says this in her book just released a month or two ago, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. Poor women, rich women, sick women, grieving women, old women, young girls, Jewish women, Gentile women, women known for their sinfulness, women known for their virtue, virgins and widows, prostitutes and prophetesses. Looking through their eyes, we see a man who valued women of all kinds, especially those vilified by others. Indeed, the way that Jesus treated women tore up the belief that women are innately inferior to men, a belief pervasive in the ancient world. 
We should not be surprised, therefore, that women have been flocking to Jesus ever since. You want a message of liberation for women? Introduce them to Jesus. She's right. No wonder in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28, we read, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, what Paul's saying here is not that you lose your maleness or femaleness in Christ or that you lose your Jewish or Gentile ethnicity or that your socioeconomic uh, level is all of a sudden changed. What Jesus is saying is that in Christ, our affirmation of equal value and equal need is met because the gospel is needed by us all. Second, men and women in God's church. Now we're able to make the turn here from the creation of God to the church of God. What is gender diversity, male and female, in the body of Christ look like? Well, for starters, number seven, the body of Christ is inherently involving the inclusion, the participation of both men and women who now regard each other, relate to each other as brothers and sisters in the same family. The day was Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Jesus had just ascended and Peter was preaching this first big message to explain what had just happened. Here's what it says, Acts 2 verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Hey, we just did that last week. This should be familiar. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. We see that 1 Corinthians 11 and elsewhere. Men and women, both given the full presence of the Holy Spirit, both able to use his gifts in ways that help the whole, that help the family of God and the witness of the gospel. Why? because now they're spiritual siblings. Every believer, male or female, receives a spiritual gift or multiple spiritual gifts for the building up of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. If you're a follower of Jesus, whether male or female, you have been given gifts because you are essential to the body of Christ and this local body. The scriptures are clear. There's no convincing argument in the scriptures that certain gifts were only allocated to certain genders. Now, gifting is different than office. We'll see that in a moment. But everyone has something essential to contribute to the body of Christ. And in the local church like ours, we want to foster that from everyone. Each person is vital. Number eight, God calls, gifts, and uses both genders in essential ways to form his people and to empower them for mission. It's rare that we would hear it questioned that God gifts and calls and uses males. But it's more often that we might hear someone or it might be perceived, but does he do the same in equal significance with females? And that's a tragedy because that claim is not true. Think about it. Mary and Martha with Jesus, 
Mom and Grandma Lois and Eunice with Timothy. Lydia, a leading businesswoman in Philippi. Priscilla, a leading teacher of the scriptures in Corinth. The mission of the gospel all the way until the current age is the story in large part of women who have sacrificed and given insight and led in ways to make Jesus shine brightly. We see that in the courage, the testimony of our own global workers in our day. Think about it. Karen Foster, Barb Wooler, Tracy Schwartz a few weeks ago, Renessa Belahovic today. Our testimony, our extension would be impoverished without them. It's even true in our own church. The ministry of our church would be a shell of itself without the contributions and leadership of women. I, I can't imagine our staff without Dana Lawrence and Peggy Maines and Jackie Huey and Allie Nathan and Jody Adkins and the list goes on. And that says nothing about hundreds of ladies in our church who help us pursue our mission well, whose contribution is invaluable. Nine, God gives complementary roles to husbands and wives. In Christian marriage, they display this differentiation or the display of it highlights the gospel, including Christ and the church. I've done a few weddings in recent months, including my own daughter two weeks ago. And, and this passage in Ephesians 5 is near and dear. Here's what it reads to wives and husbands. Chapter 5, verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You hear it? You see it? One man, one woman in marriage is this irreplaceable picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his church. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, if we make husbands and wives interchangeable, we lose the gospel message that marriage is designed to preach and we do violence to the word of life to which women have been drawn for millennia. You hear what she's saying? When we make men and women interchangeable, we undermine the picture of the gospel in marriage that is such an attraction and such a truth to all, including maybe especially women. 10. A healthy local church depends on each man and woman to participate, sacrifice, and use their gifts for the good of others. How we treat others is influenced by their gender. Friends, there are no spare parts in the body of Christ. There's none of you that says, ah, I'm not valuable. I'm not useful. They don't need me. No. We need each person, and gender doesn't make you superior or inferior. The biblical pattern of male leadership is never an excuse for ignoring women, belittling women, overlooking the contributions of women, or abusing women in any way. But gender does influence how we interact with one another. Males and females are of equal value, but we're not gender blind. 
In fact, the Bible tells us not to be gender blind. Where are you say? Here's Titus chapter 2, verse 2. We're conscious of gender and age, I might add, in relationships. Teach older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Teach older women, likewise, to be reverent in the way they live, not slanders, addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Why? Then they can teach younger women, urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. See, the point here is the testimony of the gospel. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, and that's said many times in the Bible. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So that people who look at the body of Christ and see the, the outworkings of the gospel will want to throw stones, but will say there's no place to throw them. Will want to object, but won't have places legitimately to object to. 11, the Bible teaches that primary spiritual authority and responsibility in the local church is given to elders who, by God's explicit directive, are biblically qualified men. Now, this is admittedly a topic that deserves a lot more time than a few minutes that we'll give it today. But since it's a frequent question um, asked by believers, observable in churches, seen in our own church, it's worth our time. Just a note, I wrote a multi-page document for our district of churches in Central Ohio three or four years ago. We'll try to put that on our website for your further uh, perusal and and study. Here at Grace, we're we're committed to the scriptures, not only God's directives on gender, but also on church uh, leadership and governance. And in light of that, it's our settled conviction that a plurality of elders is the best uh, representation of the scriptures and the best uh, path for church governance, and that those elders should be biblically qualified, i.e. godly men. Now, there are a lot of passages that speak in some way to this, but none of them as essential as 1 Timothy chapter 2. You can turn there if you want. The context is the local church. It's the gathered uh, worshiping community. It deals with gender conduct and leadership. Here's how it reads. Verse 8. Therefore... I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. No, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume or exercise authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, Paul's giving... Uh, instructions based on gender here. Start with the men, verse 8. Men are told how they ought to pray and how they relate uh, in a manner worthy of Christ. It's supposed to be in unity, not in disagreement. Good that no men have ever disputed with one another, right? Paul's just covering his bases here. By the way, these instructions are transcultural. Who does Paul address? I want the men everywhere. Anybody know a place that's not part of everywhere? This isn't just in one church or in one location. This is everywhere. Then he turns his attention to women to adorn themselves with godly conduct. 
Not, not fixated on style and, and, and dress, but on behavior and conduct. Further, God, through Paul, speaks of the posture in which they should learn. In quietness, what does that mean? Well, Paul answers here explicitly, women are not to teach over men in the gathered assembly of the church, nor to exercise spiritual authority over men in the church, which begs a couple of questions. What does that mean and why? Well, Paul here is prohibiting women from a teaching role or posture over men in the church that communicates spiritual oversight and authority. There are a lot of books, a lot of articles that have examined the nuances of this prohibition. In short, our conclusions are that the function of an elder, that's what's in the purview of what Paul writes. And that those functions should be carried out by biblically qualified recognized men. In fact, we see gendered language here. Chapter 3, verse 2, 1 Timothy speaks of a one-woman man using gendered language. That's why elders here at Grace are carefully vetted, godly men. So the, the answer to the what is important, but even more sensitive, is the question why. And let's admit, people tend to read the scriptures through the lens of the culture in which we live. We live in a society which places a premium on equal value, equal rights, equal roles. And so we ask ourselves the question, what could be God's motives here? Why? In fact, one author says, nothing's more objectionable in the minds of contemporary people than the biblical concept of an all-male eldership. Many view it as sexist, discriminatory, and another example of male dominance. But should they? Note what Paul does not write here. Paul doesn't say this is so because of the lack of female value or contribution. Not at all. The whole Bible speaks against that objection. Paul doesn't write because there's a lack of leadership or teaching capacity in females. If you saw my family tree, wife, sisters-in-law, mother, mother-in-law, aunts, there's a whole plethora of ladies who are gifted teachers and leaders in their own right. Paul doesn't speak of the lack of education in Ephesus because if that was true, then most of the men are disqualified as well. No, here's the grounding of this instruction. It's the creation order. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. God's design for local church spiritual authority is rooted in his creation design for men and women. Paul here doesn't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the context of the local church because to do so would be a violation of God's original design, God's original creation. God gave Adam, and it's repeated in the New Testament, the role of being the head, and the woman was to be his helpmate, which does not indicate a lack of trust or a lack of gifting or a lack of value. It does indicate an ordering by God of responsibility in particular to a husband in a marriage and to godly men in the church, and only God fully understands that. Here's what we do know. When we fail to find godly men, to challenge 
those men to rise up in responsibility and initiative and sacrifice, we actually fail everyone, including maybe especially the women. I've rarely met a woman who says, I really like passive men. (laughs) See, when male leadership is gracious and godly and gifted, everyone benefits. In the church, men and women alike are liberated to use their gifts and to follow their calling. But even more important is to remember the character of God. See, when God gives these instructions about gender and male and female and the home and the church, we need to remember that God's not just wise and sovereign. He is. But he's good and he's personal. Do you believe that? God wants all of his children to thrive, male and female. When God gives instructions and design, they're meant not for our suppression, but for our liberation. Not for our frustration, but for our joy. If we view God's instructions as negative, maybe the problem isn't with God, but it's with us or how we've lived those out. The designer always knows what's for our best, and we do well to heed him, men and women, in the marriage, in the home, in the family, in the church, in society. And that leads us to our final point. When we live out God's design in the home and in the church, especially in our gender identity and callings, we make the gospel most attractive and display God's brilliance. Again and again, these instructions in the Bible are given for our health and for the witness of the gospel. That's true in the family, that's true in the church. We adorn the gospel, we decorate the gospel when we live out the way God intended. We point to Jesus. As we close a couple of Flawed but helpful illustrations come to mind here. One is from the path. The other is from the dance floor. Take your pick. If you've ever watched two people who are riding a tandem bike, you've seen one of two results. Either they're on the ground bickering with one another over who messed up, or each of them has assumed a vital but different role on the ride, depending upon where they sit. And if they have, you'll see them upright, making progress, maybe even enjoying it. It's a beautiful sight. If you've ever watched a couple dance, it's similar. You see two individuals, on the one hand, who in great frustration are trying to yank the other one to follow their lead. Or you see two people who have embraced a vital but differentiated role One with courage and initiative, patience and sensitivity. The other with a gracious response, shadowing, affirming the other. And that's a sight to behold. That's the picture of diversity at work in the body of Christ, in the church of God, where each person cares more about the functioning and the health of the whole than their own part or their own preference. And when that happens, especially in the area of gender, you and I can truly celebrate unity in diversity.
The complementarity and teamwork of men and women in the church are a blessing to all and an adornment of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you know best. Sometimes we understand, sometimes we like, but what you do for us is always good. Those are easy words to say. Sometimes they're hard to accept and embrace, but I pray that your children, those who follow Jesus Christ, would say God is good and his ways are best. Help us not only to submit to your ways, but to embrace them for our good and for your glory. Thank you that you've created us differently. Thank you that you've given us value. Thank you that you've exposed our need. And I pray that in this body of believers, we might live out your grand plan so that others may see what a marvelous God you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.